Hello, dear listener. This is Tanner here with Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. A reminder that these episodes about Ukraine and Russia are not scripted. They are reporting as quickly as events happen, as often as I can get them. Sometimes I will misspeak. Sometimes I will say things that are untrue, simply because the information that I have at the time is all that I'm being given. In the future, we may look back at things I say here and we'll realize, oh, he was totally wrong about that. But remember, I am doing this because I want people to be as updated as I am, because I'm trying to stay as updated as possible about the events that are happening and trying to report them as unbiased as I possibly can. So with that being said, please give me grace if I misspeak, and please remember that I'm trying to do my absolute best. Without further ado, enjoy this one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the podcast. The podcast is Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. I'm Tanner, and as with every single time you tune into this podcast, I'm going to be talking about stuff that happened. Thank you so much for tuning in again. I've been I've transferred from doing updates every day to every couple few days to now about once a week. We might have to transfer to a little bit less than that because I was, like I said in the last episode, I was recently cast in a musical as the lead of the musical, and that's taking up a lot of my time now. This is my this is my favorite passion. Doing this podcast is my absolute number one favorite passion. But sometimes you have to just kind of pick your battles. I also it's also finals week, and I've got a couple papers to write. But I had a spare hour at my disposal today, so I decided I am going to update this podcast and talk about some of the things that have been going on recently in uh, Russia and Ukraine, because that's what we've been talking about recently. So, right before I begin that, remember, if you enjoy the podcast, please head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a five-star review or however many stars you feel like I deserve. And also, if you feel so inclined, please leave me something nice to write. I've gotten a couple really nice reviews lately. They mean a lot to me. Thank you so much for letting me know, and specifically what you enjoy about the podcast. That really means the world to me, so thank you so much. Um, leaving reviews helps us get more people involved with the conversations about this, about history and specifically this topic in Russia and Ukraine. As you, as you remember, I'm trying to give an unbiased view of what's going on in the country. And so we can get the truth out there because the truth is, uh, the truth is more important than any agenda that could be propagated. And it is important to me that the truth has avenues to be delivered to the public. And so if you're listening to this podcast, it's because you are looking for the truth. And that is, I commend you for that. So thank you so much. And that's not just me patting myself on the back, that's me being honest, because the truth is kind of hard to find sometimes. And so, let's dive right into this, because this will be a little bit of a shorter episode, but let's just jump right into the meat and potatoes of what's going on. So, big picture, let's look at the big picture really quickly. We've been following the conflict in between Russia and Ukraine, and the greatest military, uh, conventional military operation since the end of World War II. But we also, in a couple episodes, have discussed how this could have broader repercussions. So right when I started covering this situation, there was one thing that I said in several episodes in a row, and that was how the West handles this conflict could dictate how China handles the ta their Taiwan problem. Now remember, if you're not as familiar with the Taiwan situation, the... Nationalist government of China fled to the island of Taiwan after the end of the Chinese Civil War toward the end of the 1940s and early 1950s. And so they were technically like, they considered themselves to be the Chinese government in exile. And that's the government that still governs over Taiwan today. The Taiwanese flag is the flag of the nationalist Chinese government that fled after the end of the Chinese Civil War when the Chinese Communist Party completely took over. So the Chinese Communist Party still governs over China today, but the Chinese Nationalist Party governs over Taiwan, and the Nationalist Party declares that all of China is actually 
part of the Taiwanese territory. It's kind of crazy to think about, but that is the Chinese nationalist government that is in control of Taiwan. Well, the Chinese Communist Party declares that Taiwan is part of China. You can see the pretty fundamental disconnect there. This would be similar to if the United States said that Alaska is part of the United States. And there was a big civil, let's say the Confederacy lost the civil war and the Confederate government decided to flee to, let's say, Alaska. Alaska wasn't part of the union at the time, but let's just say for hypothetical sake. So the Confederacy flees to Alaska and they say, okay, Alaska is part of the Confederacy. And technically all of the United States is Confederate land, but the union just says that it's in control of it. Now, the Union were to say, which was the United States, the United States says actually Alaska's part of the United States. There's a fundamental disconnect there. And if the United States wanted to invade Alaska and take it over, it would be a war and it would be very bloody. But if Alaska wanted to invade the United States again, it would be a, it would be a war and it would be very bloody. So that's kind of what China is looking at right now. Both of these sides say that they have the rightful ownership of the other's territory. And the difficulty here is that Taiwan controls much of the South China Sea, and uh, it's a trading hub for a lot of the West. A lot of the West doesn't trade directly with China. Well, they do trade directly with China, but a lot of the West trades with the Philippines, with Indonesia, with Australia, and Taiwan offers a rest stop for a lot of those trade routes. And also, Taiwan is a hub for trade. And also, as we know, Taiwan controls a lot of the super uh, superconductor market. And so if China were to invade Taiwan, already we have strained ties between China and the United States and China and a lot of other Western countries. If China were to invade Taiwan and take it, which if they were to invade Taiwan, it, they would likely take it within a matter of weeks. It would be ferocious, bloody fighting, but they would take Taiwan with, I mean, the second strongest army in the world. It's just, that's what would happen unless the West were to get involved, but we don't need to go into that. But if China were to take Taiwan, not only would, would they be then almost completely controlling all of the superconductor market, they would also control a lot of those trade routes in the South China Sea. They would have full jurisdiction over them because Taiwan, if, if Chinese ships sail near Taiwan, Taiwan says, you got to get out of here. We're going to fire on your ships. And China doesn't want a global war, which invading Taiwan could cause. And so they wisely decide to get out of Taiwanese waters. Because there are no Chinese ships in Taiwanese waters, Taiwan, it, it, it provides safe passage for a lot of Western ships. And even people who are Chinese enemies can sail through Taiwanese waters and be able to trade with other nations in that area. If China were to take Taiwan, those trade routes would be cut off. And it, I mean, best case scenario, China would say, well, we're going to impose a lot of tariffs on this trade because then China makes a lot more money because people still need to use these trade routes. gives a lot more costly for goods and services to pass through that strait, and that trickles eventually down to the consumer, which means a lot of Chinese goods would suddenly get a lot more expensive. We buy Chinese goods right now because they're very cheap. If they were to get more expensive, it would make it kind of tough. The U.S. economy in general would suffer, and the world economy in general would suffer. So that's what we're looking at here. So to come full circle... I was talking about the situation between China and Taiwan because China was threatening to invade Taiwan. At the same time, Russia was threatening to invade Ukraine. And it was kind of a waiting game to see which would do, which, which would actually follow through with their threats first. 
well, obviously we know now that Russia has followed through first and they decided to take the leap first. So Russia invaded Ukraine and consequentially Russia was thrown with a huge package of package of sanctions from almost every single Western nation. And most Western nations are now doing absolute minimal business with Russia. Russian gas is still being imported to a lot of different countries, but a lot of civilian industries, civilian goods that are shipped out of Russia are no longer being purchased. I mean, in the state that I live in, the governor mandated that no Russian alcohol could be sold anymore. I went to a bar and there was no Russian alcohol on the shelf. It was kind of crazy to see. Now, I was thinking that China would follow through pretty quickly with their invasion of Taiwan. I thought they would use the Russian invasion of Ukraine as a buffer to any Western nations who would try to invade, who would try to intervene in a Chinese war with Taiwan. Because if, if the West was so focused on what was going on in Ukraine, they wouldn't be able to send forces over to assist Taiwan. China would be able to take Taiwan quickly, and then that would be the end of the war before any Western countries could intervene. Now, that's not what happened, and I was wrong about that. But China is still stepping up this really hawkish rhetoric concerning the situation in Taiwan. I mean, even just a few days ago, I saw a news headline that a lot of U.S. diplomats decided to land a plane in Taiwan and do a diplomatic visit. And obviously this was kind of some political theater because to put U.S. diplomats in Taiwan was to show China we're on board with what's going on here in Taiwan. We're not on board with what China's thinking. And we've made it abundantly clear that we're not on board with what China's thinking. There are some U.S. diplomats who are pro-China, but most of them are not. Most of them are saying we don't want this superpower to overtake us because... We don't like their government. We don't like the way they handle dissent, you know, a lot of things like that. Again, there are some U.S. diplomats who praise some things that China does, and I think that that's frightening. But by and large, most U.S. diplomats are not on board with what China is doing. So to fly a plane into Taiwan and have a bunch of U.S. diplomats get off and say, hey, we love Taiwan, that is political theater. And China responded by basically saying the U.S. is playing a dangerous game here. Now, all this to say that the situations between Russia and Ukraine and China and Taiwan are linked in the way that the U.S. is looking at them. The U.S. has essentially severed ties with Russia completely. Like, diplomatically, we've almost completely severed ties with Russia since this war broke out. And most Western countries have done the same. Russia is not is having a very bad day economically. They can sustain themselves, and it, it's, it's foolish to say that Russia... It will collapse on itself because of these sanctions. That's foolish because Russia has all of the resources necessary to sustain itself, has all the food that it needs, has all the oil that it needs. It can sustain itself energetically for a thousand years if it wanted to, but it has to do with a lot of luxury goods that are no longer available in Russia, which a lot of civilians may be upset about. I, we don't know yet. It's, it's, too, it's too short to say. We may have to wait another six months of this war to be able to see the effects that that will start to present themselves on the civilians when they say we want our we want our nice things back. Really all that these these sanctions have done have turned Russian people against the West more and Russian people toward Putin more effectively because Putin is their fearless leader. You got to remember that Putin led the Russian people out of this horrific situation they were in, in the political situation they were in in the 90s. Remember, after the Soviet Union fell, essentially Russia was under mob rule for 10 years. The mob controlled everything, and it was terrifying to live there because the mob controlled everything. Putin was extremely tough on crime and brought Russia out of that situation into a more peaceful and safe situation that it's currently in. Even if Putin's very authoritarian, 
He did bring the people out of that. And so anybody over the age of 25 is going to be very thankful that Putin was there and that he brought the Russian people out of that. And so while there's maybe there may be a movement among young people to go against Putin, everybody else is just going to be like, well, if the West is going to sanction us, we're going to stick to our guns and the guy that let us out of this horrific situation. And so all, all that these sanctions have done have driven the Russian people into the arms of Putin more. So the U.S.'s response basically just severed ties with Russia and potentially made things worse. I'm not going to say absolutely, but potentially has made things worse in that situation. Now, the U.S. already has pretty strained diplomatic ties with China. Now, if you were to look at this situation and say, okay, who are the three major players on the world stage right now? You would probably say the United States, China, and Russia. They have the three strongest armies in the world. They don't, Russia doesn't have one of the biggest economies in the world, but it does have a big say in what's going on. It has the longest borders in the world, and so it controls a lot of trade in that area. So, the three major players are Russia, China, and the United States. The United States has really rough ties with Russia. The United States has really rough ties with China. If China was to invade Taiwan and to ally, to create a military alliance with Russia, the United States would probably do absolutely nothing about it because it wouldn't be worth it for us to go do anything about it because that would mean war with Russia and China, which would be catastrophic to the entire world population. I'm not going to say nuclear war, but it's possible. Anything's possible. Since the war broke out, Russia and China have been seeming a little bit more friendly. Right as the war broke out, China started flying planes over Taiwanese airspace. And so I was sitting there thinking like, oh, here we go. World War III, it's happening right now. Again, I was wrong about that at that time. But Russia and China have been getting a little bit more buddy-buddy since then. China is now buying oil from Russia at a heavily discounted rate, along with India. India is doing the same. And honestly, I don't blame them because, look, we get oil at a, at a discounted rate. This isn't our war to fight. We don't have any st stock in this. So we are just going to enjoy buying oil at a discounted price. Even though the Russian invasion of Ukraine is unjustified, you got to take what you can get sometimes. Pick your battles, like I said before. And look, I'm not justifying anybody, anybody's actions and I'm not siding with anybody's actions. I'm just pointing out that this situation is more complicated than those of us who live in the suburbs of the United States have the power to understand. In short, what I'm getting at here is that the situation globally has changed since the beginning of this war because Russia and China have gotten significantly closer to one another or they are more inclined to share and a more economic ties with each other, more military ties with each other, just because they both now have a fundamental distrust of the West. And obviously that distrust was there before the war, before the war broke out, but now that distrust is heightened. Russia is far more distrusting of the West and they, they have, the West has demonstrated that Russia can no longer not rely on them for economic support. But Russia shares a border with China in a lot of locations. And that border probably looks a lot more interesting now that 
the west, the western border of Russia is essentially completely walled off. Their airspace is completely walled off. No cargo planes from Russia, no passenger planes from Russia can pass through most countries on the western border of Russia. And so that eastern border and southern border is starting to look a lot nicer right now. So we're probably going to see Russia make a lot more ties with countries like Uzbekistan, countries like Kazakhstan, places like that, and also China. If Russia and China ally... Any military action on their part will probably be just overlooked by Western countries because that, a war of that scale is not worth it to anyone. And the loss of life on that scale is not worth it to those countries, not to mention the economic in- impacts. So that's how the world situation has changed since the outbreak of this war. Let's move on to what's going on on the ground in Ukraine. We talked in the last episode of what was going on on the ground. And what's going on on the ground is that the military strategy of Russia has essentially fundamentally changed since the beginning of the war. At the beginning of the war, they were doing missile strikes all across Ukraine. They invaded from the south, they invaded from the east, and they invaded from the north. Now they have concentrated their forces. They have pulled out completely from the north. They're, so Kiev is is safe from ground invasion. They have pulled... I think their their advances in the south have kind of just kind of stayed static. They're staying in the states that they've that they've taken in the south but they've redirected a lot of their invading force to the east, to the to the Donbass region, which is where the civil war that Ukraine's been fighting has been being fought for the last eight years. We're going on nine years now. And so this pull of troops is going to cause the bloodiest fighting of the war so far that we've seen. Russia still has about 150,000 troops that they can direct where they need to. I think in the north there were something like 40,000 soldiers, and all of those 40,000 soldiers are now being rerouted to the east. And Ukraine is probably rerouting a similar size of forces to defend the Donbass region. At the beginning of the war, there were something like 60,000 Ukrainian troops on the Donbass border anyway, and so Russian gains have been minimal in that region. But now, Russia is redirecting a lot of its main force to the east. And so, while the capital city of Kiev is safe in Ukraine... A lot of Ukrainian soldiers are about to be put in the line of fire for the deadliest fighting that the war has seen thus far. So what does this mean? What, what could Russia's strategy be? I've been looking at this and the thought crossed my mind today. Russia could be conceding a lot of what it, what it initially wanted for the war. So the war in Donbass has been being fought because pro-Russian separatists in the east wanted to leave Ukraine. Ukraine wouldn't let them leave. Russia recognized the two independent republics of Luhansk and Donetsk, which are almost entirely ethnically Russian. They want to be part of Russia for the most part. So, in the south, in in the city of Kherson, the big city of Kherson, which is the, which is the only major population center that Russia has complete control over, Mariupol is going to fall very soon. The Mariupol siege has been going on for over a month now, and that city is going to fall very soon. I'm sure of it. The Ukrainian soldiers that are still there are holed up in a couple little factories, maybe a couple, maybe a few neighborhoods, but, and they're holding out, but Russia essentially has control over the entire city. So Mariupol will fall soon. But as of right now, as of today, Kherson is the only city that uh, Russia has complete control over. And what has Russia done there? The main thing that they've done that hints to me what their plan is, is that they've introduced the Russian ruble into circulation in Kherson. Ukrainian civilians in Kherson are using the Russian ruble to purchase goods. 
Journalists inside Kherson have said that life inside Kherson has essentially returned back to normal, except for that people are using the Russian ruble and Russian flags are hanging from government buildings in Kherson, which I believe means that Russia is planning to annex Kherson and the south of Ukraine into the Russian Federation. Easier said than done, obviously, but they're probably going to do the same for Mariupol. Now, what I think is happening, my hypothesis is that Russian, the Russian government initially wanted to take Kiev really quickly. They wanted it to be a lightning war. They decimate the Ukrainian infrastructure. They destroy the Ukrainian military. And then they say, okay, these are our demands. Ukraine can't ally with NATO. Ukraine can't do this. Ukraine can't do that. Ukraine has to demand, disband its military, you know, et cetera, et cetera. That didn't work out. Obviously, it didn't work out. Remember the 50-mile-long convoy that was outside of Kiev that suddenly just, like, left? They could have taken Kiev. It just would have been a viciously bloody battle. I think Russia decided it was for the best that that didn't happen. So Russia pulled its troops out. Pulled them over to the east. Now they're advancing on Donbass. As of today, Russia has launched the largest ground offensive of the war so far. There are Russian troops flooding into eastern Ukraine. They've already taken a few cities. Smaller cities, not big population centers yet, but small cities. So what I believe this means is that Russia is planning to invade the entire Donbass region, where the civil war has been being fought, like I've said I think four times now in this podcast. They're planning to invade that region, overtake it completely, introduce Russian infrastructure to that region, and then sign peace accords with Ukraine that essentially says, okay, now this is ours. The war can be over, but we're taking this for us. Russia annexes the Donbas. Russia annexes a lot of southern Ukraine near Crimea and, you know, like Kherson, Mariupol. They annex all that territory. They leave Odessa for Ukraine to keep, so Ukraine has a port on the Black Sea. But all of this territory, they overtake with sheer force of numbers, with ground forces, and then their peace talks are that. Ukraine, you can stay mostly the same. You can keep your government, but... We're going to take this, this region because that would provide a buffer, the buffer that Russia wants with NATO. That's what I think is going to happen. That's how I think this situation has fundamentally changed. Now, right before I go, I've got one more thing I want to talk about very quickly. And that thing is that I've been listening, I've been expanding my horizons a little bit in the type of news places that I listen to, the type of analysis that I listen to. And I've been listening to a couple different news sources that are a little bit friendlier to Russia, not necessarily like pro-Russia, but they look at the situation more objectively and they say, you know, I don't think Putin's a madman. I think this was all very calculated. Um, I think that the war is going better for Russia than a lot of news agencies let on. I think, you know, things like that. I'm listening to more of that because I've been curious about that. I've, I've kept my central news outlets that are more pro-Ukraine, but I'm just kind of trying to expand my horizons here. And what a lot of people are saying that is that all of this has a lot of these news sources that are more um, that are less anti-Russian are more inclined to say things like all of this has been very planned, all of this is very calculated. Russia knows exactly what they're doing. An event happened a couple days ago that I, has challenged that view, in my opinion, and it's that the Russian flagship, the Moscow, the Moskva, has sunk. It was bombed by Ukrainian forces. Russia said that it just caught on fire and it sank, but all of the sailors on board died. And so it, that leads me to believe that this was not an accident. I believe Ukraine did bomb this ship and sink it. It was a Russian flagship and it leaves a lot of the Russian fleet vulnerable to air attacks. And so Russia had ceased missile attacks on Kiev about a week ago. 
maybe two weeks ago, when they pulled their troops back. The Moskva ship sunk, Ukrainian forces sunk it, and within hours of that ship sinking, Russia renewed its bombing campaign on Kiev, which I think was, is a retaliatory strike for what happened to the Moskva. That leads me to believe that all of this is not calculated, and Ukraine actually has a stronger foothold on the country than a lot of these uh, less anti-Russian outlets are letting on. I think Ukraine is putting up a stronger fight than a lot of pro-Russian sentiment may lead you to believe. This is not so much Russia steamrolling Ukraine, as we've seen. Ukraine's putting up a fight, and this is a war. And this war, I think, is going to drag on a little bit longer, unless my hypothesis is correct. If my hypothesis is correct, Russia's going to send tons of forces into Donbass. They're going to overtake the region. They're going to sue for peace. The peace talks are going to be, we're, we take the Donbass region. These republics are independent. We take Kherson. And you can go free. Just my hypothesis. I might have rambled. I might have been all over the place with this podcast. I've got a lot going on in my life. I have to leave and actually have to leave in about seven minutes to go to rehearsal for the show that I got cast in. So I hope you all enjoy the podcast. Remember, if you enjoy the podcast, head over to the Apple podcast or Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, leave me a five-star review. Let, let me know that you're enjoying what you're hearing. Thank you for so much for listening. I will catch you soon. Remember, I am currently researching for a long-form podcast that will examine everything that has led up to this war between Russia and Ukraine so you can have a pure, unbiased view of what's going on here and why it's important and what led up to it. Because the whole Putin's a madman narrative does not hold up under scrutiny. So, thank you all for listening again, and I'll catch you next time. Tanner, signing off.